Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the everyone. Happy St. Valentine's Day. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am St. Jan, the power behind Van Helsink. And with me today, all the way from across the pond, is the gold standard of ghost hunting and just a hunk of hunk of burning love, Steve Parsons. Yay! Do you know, if I'd have known you were going to be on, I'd have, because Kat's just jumped in the bath. Uh, she was just here a few minutes ago. We could have done the girls on the show. Oh, well, I, I told I told you I had it sorted, but you didn't listen to me. Well, you, you, the trouble is, you never give me any information. You, you're talking riddles and half sentences, and uh, you didn't expect anything else, did you, Steve? Not really, Jan. Good to hear your voice, though. <laughs> Thank you. And happy Valentine's Day to you and Cat. Yes. Thank you very much. And your boys. And the boys, of course. What? Boys don't yeah. get Valentine's. His little boys are so adorable, so they do. Yeah, hey. they, can have, they can have. So how, how deep is the snow? It's deep. But I have a, qu- <laughs> I have a question. <laughs> See? See what I mean? Ask him a question. Wait for the answer. I, I have a question for you. Is, you okay. know, Valentine's, Valentine's Day, ever since I was a little kid, was really important. And in, in school, we all gave Valentine's to each other. And is that what they do in the UK, too? Oh, absolutely. It's exactly the same over here. It's become a lot more commercialized in the last time. Um, but, yeah, no, it's always been. Uh, the, the tradition was you never signed the card, so it was always supposed to be a mystery who your Valentine card was from. Really? Yeah. I mean, that was the big thing. You, you got the card, but it was always signed with a question mark or just a kiss or some of the cryptic clue as to who your Valentine, your secret admirer, your secret love was. But that seems to have gone out of the window these days with commercialization. You're supposed to now um, trumpet your affections all over social media instead. <laughs> there you and go. Woe, and woe betide you if you don't buy lots and lots of stuff. While I was doing research for the show, I came across uh, this little site, and they had all these little cute little Valentine's Day cards that you would get in, like, in grammar school. And there was a whole bunch of them that had uh, paranormal themes on them, ghost themes, you know, with ghosts and mummies and witches and all that stuff. Did you ever get any of those when you were a kid? No, I didn't. Uh, but um, funny enough, I have one of those old-fashioned Valentine card images sent to me today um, via one of our listeners and one, uh, from Sandra, Sandra from um, who comes to Spirit Quest. Um, she said that I might be interested in seeing one of them. She sent me a lovely one which had a paranormal theme to it. Oh, isn't that just adorable? So that I thought that, nice. was, that was nice um, I, because I, no, I, I've not seen any of those. Ours, ours were ours are the the traditional. Um, Although there was also something called vi- the Vinegar Valentine, which was very popular in Victorian England, um, where people would send people that they didn't like really horrid, and I mean nasty, um, Vinegar Valentine cards that, that, were, that were really quite abusive. You know, we think of the Victorians as polite and staid, but these cards were um, nothing like you would expect from, from, from um, the Victorians. 
Hmm. They were called well, vinegar valentines. I just noticed that Nate in the chat room says he has no sound. So, Karina, are we, are we broadcasting? Okay, thank you, lovely. Oh, I hear your voice just makes my day. Tell Nathan, tell, tell Nathan to plug his headphones in. <laughs> anyway, so Victorian, that's, uh, it goes all the way back to that time that they had uh, Valentine's? Um, absolutely, definitely, yes. Um, Valentine's was a big celebration in Victorian England, a big, a big time for sending cards. I mean, cards aren't that new, um, um, aren't an old phenomena, I mean. They, they really only started off with the penny post and the idea that people could send cards to one another. There were always Valentine gifts. I mean, the, the idea of St. Valentine goes back way, way, way into history. But the, um, the notion of sending cards. Um, sorry, I'm just getting distracted slightly by Skype. Yeah. Um, the, the notion of. The notion of sending cards uh, really only comes about with the the sort of late Victorian era in the penny post, which I think was the 1840s. Really? Do you know the uh, the the legend of Saint Valentine? Um, actually, I don't. I I know he was um, I know he was stoned to death and beaten and uh, was he he was imprisoned and beaten and then you know we commemorate his death by sending everybody chocolates and flowers. Seems a bit. That's <laughs> right. But you know, hey, we celebrate the uh, well. Actually, Easter—it's the rising of Christ, isn't it? Both with chocolate, but it just seems any excuse. He was. It was. It. I think he was killed by the Romans, wasn't he? Most people were. <laughs> I think so, probably. But uh, anyways, uh, yeah, I'm distracted with a little uh, connecting. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, I, I, I've. I've said to our guest um, that he needs to update his Skype and turn his status to online, um, but he seems to be connecting and disconnecting on Skype. So, at least I think that's what... Um, well, just... I guess I'm going to leave my lovely wife, so uh, she's going to say goodbye to us. Goodbye, everybody. I hope you have a wonderful day today. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's, Happy Valentine's Day, Day, Jan. You have a, Say hi to Cat for me, please, okay? I will do. Once you get out of the bath, I'll pass on your, your best wishes. And uh, it, by the sound of it this week, you, you, your husband is a wonderful cook. We, we've suggested Supper that he... was just good with yeah. yesterday, yeah. It was we very should... good. He does a really good job. When he makes meals for us, it's wonderful. It, I really appreciate it. Well, we've suggested that right. maybe he should um, do a cooking show. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so Radio Recipes with Van Helsing. Yeah, we we um, we're, we're struggling with the guests tonight. It's a bit last minute because um, let me just let me just uh, sort of toggy player has no sound. No, it's Nathan. Um, yeah, keep going with the with the uh, te- telepathy, Nathan. Um, as you know, Ron, there is a very historic site in Britain um, which was investigated by uh, Harry Price, and for who the location of which I will be doing a talk about later in the year. Um, I think it's Borley I'm doing the talk about, but nonetheless, it's Borley. Um, now, our good, our good friend Andrew Taylor, um, in addition to being a proclaimed psychic medium, and I, I know he, he he knows that I refer him to him that way, um, is a superb, and I mean a superb model maker. 
uh, I've seen some of his works in the past where he's made aircraft out of paper and cardboard. Um, and he's made buildings. He, he made a station building for a railway layout several years ago, which truly was, I mean, it, the detail, the depth of detail uh, was mind-blowing. Well, some, some months ago, uh, several, uh, about six or eight weeks ago, he decided he was going to build not one, but two Borley Rectory replicas um, to scale. And uh, one, one of them, um, he's generously said, can come and reside here. Now, over the last few weeks on Facebook, um, people have been able to follow the building of Borley Rectory um, as it rises from the ashes. From the drawing stage, the photograph, uh, you know, as he, as he drew up the plans and as he's bought all of the different materials and he's revised the model and measured things out. Um, now, I've put a very small uh, slideshow of the build, some of the building process onto our Ghost Chronicles International page. Uh, just as we came on air. Um, and I'm hoping that we can get Andrew on tonight and then later in the year when the model is delivered, um, we're going to try and make a video of the of the model, like a sort of walk-through, fly-through of the model. Um, so I'm hoping that at some point he'll we'll, we'll get him um, on and he can tell us why and how and what it involves, and all the, the, the... I mean, it's extraordinary to say. I don't know if you've been seeing it on Facebook also, Ron. Or am I on my own again here? I am on night. <laughs> it's one of them nights. Who's disconnected from who? Right, chat room, tell me which one of us is still talking, because this has happened before. Um... Sorry, you don't like dead air. I'm trying to also deal with Skype at the same time. Um, so, anyway, as I said, Andrew has built this extraordinary... Ron is there. So, am I there? Am I not there? Am I talking to myself? Um, Ron, uh, Andrew has built this extraordinary model um, of Borley. I don't know the exact scale. It's about... Uh, well, it's about 18 by 24 inches. So, it's foot and a half by two foot... Um, it looks like now I, I say I'm only seeing it the distance, but um, it looks like it's a sort of mixture of um, the, well, fiberboard or modeling board, which is like a plastic based resin, uh, resin and card material. Um, some obviously some doll's house materials, but it's the level of construction detail that's that's truly outstanding. I can hear somebody typing. <laughs> this is truly bizarre. Skype is playing up tonight. I've got two Andrew Taylors. I've got Togginet and I've got Ron, but I can't hear anybody. So one of us is, are we both talking? Am I talking to myself? Is there anybody out there? Well, where's Ron? <laughs> Hello, Karina. How are you? Hello. 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 Okay, there we go. Right, is Andrew on as well? It is. It is. Right, well, let's find out from the man himself. Well, I was, it was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it was yeah, very I cool just leaving me here to hang for like, how many minutes? Do that no, I was, yeah, I was talking and commenting all the while. Yeah, but I had no audio. I couldn't oh. hear anything. 
I can hear you. Yeah, well, I couldn't hear anything else. I thought you'd all gone. I wish. Anyway, let's let's get on with the show. So, without further ado, I mean, I uh, I actually have to switch to another headset, uh, which should be interesting. Well, that's good. Uh, I'll, I'll talk to Andrew while you talk to yourself. Andrew's not here, right? Huh? Are you sure? He's on. Hang on. Watch this, boys. This is the mo- the wonder of modern technology. Let's see what happens. Well, is Ron while Ron switches to a new headset, and therefore we've now lost Ron, which is probably a good thing. I'd love to hear the the playback edit of this on the podcast. Um, we're hopefully um, connecting to our guest because I'm adding into the Skype call. And it's not working. Anyway, Bawley Rectory was built in the mid-1860s by the Reverend Henry Dawson Bull. And it was built for his family. He was the rector of the very small hamlet of Bawley. And that was Skype just disconnecting in the background. The very small rectory of Bawley, which is on the Essex border um, in the home counties, about 50 miles north of London. And uh, the Bull family had... They were a fairly well-to-do family, um, and they had the the uh, the rights to name the uh, the rector of the of the site, and that was that was, let's say, Henry Dawson Ball and his family, which eventually grew to uh, around fourteen in size. Um, and as it as it as it grew, it the the rectory expanded. Um, in a sort of ramshackle way around a courtyard in the centre. It, it, it historically, uh, right from the point of the time it was built, been recognised locally as a haunted house. Um, it later gained the name, or gained uh, renown as the most haunted house in England when it was investigated from the late 1920s by the British psychical researcher Harry Price. But Price makes it clear in his book that he didn't name it the most haunted house in England. It was at when he arrived on one of his visits to investigate the, the location, um, and he was taking a taxi. I don't think it was an Uber, but it was a taxi up to the rectory. Um, the taxi driver said that, oh, you mean the most haunted house in England. So clearly the property already had a reputation uh, in the area. Indeed, in the construction of the property, and uh, hopefully... Um, if our guest comes on, we might be able to see on one of the pictures. One of the windows into the drawing room was bricked up uh, either shortly after construction um, or at some later date by the Reverend Bull, the Reverend Henry Bull. Was this in regards to the uh, the uh, nun? Yeah, because he, he claimed uh, or he said that he didn't like the nun, the ghostly apparition of a nun, staring in at the, through the window whilst he and his family were eating. Um, and so he had the window bricked up. At least that's a local sense. legend. There's, there's nothing to confirm that legend is true. Or, um, I mean, it's certainly people have said, oh, it was because of something called the window tax, where in, in uh, late medieval England, um, you would be taxed on the amount of window glass that you had. Uh, sorry, in Georgian England, you would be taxed on the amount of window glass that you had. In really? Office. Now, that that tax was long, long since um, relinquished by the time that the rectory was built in the 1860s. So that 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 was not a, uh, the the right explanation. 
it could just be that as that window looked out onto the driveway, he didn't want tradesmen and passers-by peering in at the family, and so he I, he decided to close up the window. Um, but that, that's just a theory. I mean, where did you yeah, get that I mean, information? Well, the information is, is, is partly speculation because um, I'm, you know, Price repeats the legend of the nun staring in at the window, and that's why the, mm-hmm. the window is bricked up. But Price is only repeating the local legend. There is no documents to say why Henry Bull had that window bricked up. Um, but it was bricked up after the construction um, of, of the rectory uh, had been completed because it's an infill of bricks. It's not sort of, um, you know, it may it may be right, you know, almost at the point of building that he decided he didn't want the window there and then put a you know a brick course into it. Um, but the, the the window clearly did exist at some point, in, at least in the plans, and then ultimately into into the construction phase. Now Henry died, um, and the the living of the rectory passed to his son Harry Bull, uh, who who retained it right the way through until the 1920s. Uh, when he too died, he died. Both of the the father and son, Henry Bull and Harry Bull, uh, died um, in the property. And they're both buried in the Borley Rectory churchyard, which is on the opposite side of the road, a short stone's throw away from the rectory. Um, and both of their graves are visitable to this day, although uh, they've both deteriorated somewhat in the last 10 years. Uh, the site has always been a popular attraction for ghost hunters. Or way back um, in between the wars, people would, there were entrepreneurial um, ghost hunting coach parties would travel up from London uh, to visit the site and to see the ghost or to hopefully see the ghost. And they would just trample, literally trample around the, the hamlet, which you know, it's a hamlet of perhaps a dozen, a dozen or so properties. Um, and these tourists 50 or 60 at a time would come up from London. And there was a small, um, there was a small tea shop um, and they would just sort of wander around the village. And indeed that still happens today. Um, on the 28th of July annually, which is the date that the nun, the ghostly nun, is said to walk, um, then the, the village still does get ringed by the police, the Essex police force. And, I'll them. Uh, and there's quite a lot more than that in Essex. Um, and they, they make it you know, very, very difficult for ghost investigators uh, and visitors. In fact, it's, it's difficult any day of the year. It's because the village has been so harassed by... Um, the curious over the years um, it's not the friendliest village um, for people to go and just uh, park up and wander the graveyard it's perfectly possible to do but the graveyard is um, looked after by the locals it's overlooked by security cameras now um, and there is the access and parking are somewhat restricted and people are generally not that welcoming if they know your interest is related to the ghosts of the churchyard. Um, they've, they've pretty much had their fill of it. You know, they've had road signs taken. Um, they've had other you know, things taken as souvenirs and mem- uh, memorial uh, mementos uh, of people's times. Uh, I know if, if we could find our guest tonight, he he visited fairly recently. I think he went last year. Well, you were, you were actually investigated that place. I yes, I did. Yes, I'm in the fortunate position to have, uh, on three occasions, investigated Borley Rectory. Uh, in all three occasions, were overnight. Two of them were on the 28th of July, which is the supposed anniversary of the nuns 
wanderings. Uh, and on the, the one occasion, the most the the, the, the first occasion, um, we took rental of one of the properties that's on the that's on the site. It's a modern uh, 1960s built uh, single story bungalow that exists um, on on the original rectory site. So, although it's technically mostly in the rectory garden, a small part, portion of the bungalow overlies parts of the rectory itself or where the rectory was and indeed some of the foundations were still evident uh, at the, as the time we were there on that first visit uh, the homeowner was doing some con- uh, construction work and had uncovered one of the foundation walls to the rectory and we were in the fortunate position of being able to be given by the homeowner a, mm-hmm. a, bri- a brick each um, from Borley Rectory awesome. so uh yeah, uh, another occasion. We uh, the following year we returned, um, and we spent another. Uh, it was a somewhat wetter night um, uh, at Borley. Um, so yeah, in all, all told, we've been there three three times now. Uh, as as investigators, I've been a couple of more times just for day trips, um, or when we were within you know sort of a half hour drive, we would drive up and just have a little look at the site and also the adjacent um, site at Liston, um, where. Um, the Reverend Hennings, Alfred Hennings, who was also Ball, uh, rector of Borley after um, uh, Gar- uh, uh, Smith, Smythe, um, yeah, Smith, yeah. Smith, Smith. It was with a Y. I'm, I've never known the correct way could be either. Some people say Smith, some say Smythe. Mm. Um, but Hennings had the he was although he was the rector of Borley, Borley was in no fit state to be lived in, and him and his wife didn't want to live there, so they used uh, the rectory of Ball, uh, of Liston, which is adjacent, and the the um, the living was of the two uh, parishes was shared, and it became Borley cum, cum Liston. Uh, so we, we you know we visited Liston as well, and we stood on that famous spot. There's a there's a very famous photograph that Harry Price fans will be aware of of Price and Henning standing at the site where they're burying um, some remains that were found in the cellars of Borley Rectory, um, and that's at Liston Church. Although a lot of people do get muddled up and think that that might be at Borley, but that's actually at Liston Church. A very cool place. Yeah, it does sound pretty cool. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, things going on there that Bryce, that uh, Price and other people have uh, documented, and including the, the writing, the, Mar- the famous Marianne writing and, uh, you know, the, the skull and other things as well. That's true. Um, in fact, that was one of the reasons that Price got himself uh, somewhat into trouble. Um, Price first went along in 1928 um, at the behest of, I think it was the Daily Mirror newspaper, uh, the Daily Mail, Daily Mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, Smith, Smythe. Well, the report, <laughs> they, the, the, at the time, um, it was, uh, do you know, my mind is terrible for Borley tonight. What is the matter with me? I, I know this stuff. I know this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you know what it was? The love is in the air. It's Valentine's it, it Day. It is. So it's just Do you know when you know? You know when you know somebody's name, and nine times out of ten, you'll just pop it straight out. And the one time you need it, um, you can't. You can't for the life of you remember. And unfortunately, the access to the to the Borley book is blocked. 
by a load of stuff I've moved around the office before. So I can't even just surreptitiously grab the book. Anyway, pri- uh, the, the rector at the time um, who had moved it after um, had uh, called, had written to the newspaper somewhat in desperation saying that the property was haunted and could they get somebody from the Society for Psychical Research to come along. Now, the newspaper reporter never wanted to miss a story. Um, hot-footed it down to Essex to see for himself what was going on and wrote a small piece for the paper describing his experiences, uh, which weren't that many, to be honest with you. But he also got in touch with Harry Price. And a few, uh, a, little, some, a little time later, Price and his secretary, along with the reporter, returned to Borley. Um, and they spent their first night there. Uh, he motored up from London in his little car. And... Uh, all hell pretty much breaks loose from the moment Price sets foot in the building. Really? Um, there are objects being thrown. There's a, a bottle uh, that gets thrown. There are other small items are thrown. Uh, they hold a, a seance, um, a sort of an impromptu seance. Um, and they seemingly get in touch with the spirit of Harry Bull, the son. Um, and so... From then, right through until the until Price's death in 1940, Price was, was always following the case. However, he didn't always actively investigate the case. And it comes down to that writing you mentioned and mm-hmm. other... Because he suggested quite early on, sorry, it was the Reverend Foister, um, that his wife, Marianne, was probably the one who was responsible for all this sort of stuff. Uh, now, Foister took exception to that and said it, you know, it couldn't be... Um, mm-hmm. And they fell out somewhat, and Price was pretty much sort of you know held at arm's length, and only followed the the events at Borley uh, somewhat at a distance. Uh, reports where people would send him reports or snippets of information, and of course it was still making the the the, the, the local press in Essex. Uh, and it wasn't until Foister had left and Alfred Hennings had taken the. Um, the living at Borley, that Price was able to to come back because Hennings was quite keen that something ought to be, you know, looked at and investigated. Mm-hmm. It's, so uh, I, I know we're almost coming up to the break, but uh, eventually, I mean, there's so much involved with this Borley rectory, the fire, of course, which was supposedly predicted, uh, the, you know, this the, the skull, we didn't even talk about that, but... Uh, uh, you know the the burial of of the remains that were found, and so so much more. It's a it's a great story. If you haven't uh, read about it, definitely look it up. And uh, the, there's several good books on it. Some of them. Well, called... actually, there's some really good websites, and we'll give you some good, great links um, after the break um, to some really informative websites. Okay, that sounds great. But uh, so it doesn't look like we're going to get Andrew on with us well, tonight. Well, they, uh, that's okay. Uh, production have said that they're going to have a try in the break and have just worn down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have no hope in that at all. So, uh, <laughs> well, well, they've been trying for a half hour. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I... I don't know why we can't. Just because it, it's showing it is online. But, you know, I try adding him and it just bounces off. Yeah, same with me. I tried as yeah. well. And it just I didn't think... work. Everybody says it. So, anyways, maybe he's blocking our calls. That could happen. So, anyways, we'll come up to the break. And, and I actually have another subject I want to talk to you about. Radio with a cutting edge. 
feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. He was psychic, he knew that. Well, yeah. But he's a super... Uh, but for those of you who are interested, before we move away from Borley, um, if you head over to the Ghost Chronicles International page, um, there's a small slideshow that will show you at least Andrew's model, what we're planning to do in the autumn, the fall in America. Um, once the... One of the Borleys is delivered here. Um, we're going to do a, a video fly-through, walk-through, um, and then we'll get Andrew to talk us uh, through, walk us through, and tell us all about the model. The model isn't doing it justice. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Anyway, there we go. There we are, then. All right. So what was the final... Uh, what is your beliefs? Is It was Borley Rectory Haunted. Um, I think it comes down to more, I'd like to answer a question of was Price faking it? And I think the answer is almost certainly not. Uh, I know a lot of people accuse Price of faking stuff. And there was there was a, a sort of campaign that started after his death. Several members of the Society for Psychical Research um, all, all launched almost a vendetta, uh, one, one in particular by Trevor really? Hall. Absolutely a vendetta against Price, which... Uh, and there's, the same mud sticks was certainly the case. I mean, if you if you look at about any article on Price now, it says he was controversial or questionable or fraudulent or a faker. Price oh. was Price was um, an absolute stickler for doing things. And he, he yes, Price himself says um, he, he courted publicity at every opportunity because, <clears throat> like modern ghost investigators in the media, he recognised that if he wanted to influence the outcome of uh, his uh, passion, 
because what Price was most passionate about throughout his entire career was trying to uh, get psychical research as a mainstream academic pursuit studied at universities. And he applied, he, he, he offered them his, his extensive library, which was the world, at the time the world, probably still is the world's largest library of psychical material and, and research. Uh, he offered them finances and expertise. But of course, academics being what they were, applied conditions or simply did, didn't want to know. They thought it was too fringe. Now, Price also realised that um, publicity would apply pressure, and he courted the pub. He courted the media, you know, at every opportunity. He was doing nothing different in terms of media courting than any one of the television and ghost investigators that are on, or the or the TV parapsychologists like Kieran, who use the media in order to promote a message or a point of view, and that got him criticised back in the 1950s, and. A, it was a very good character assassination uh, to the point where they, they not only assassinated him, but they also went after his parents, um, saying that, you know, for different reasons, uh, lots of his history was questionable, lots of his family was questionable, and there were some aspects where they were proven correct. You know, Price had, because it was um, socially unacceptable to have had the sort some of the things in his upbringing that that had taken place and that he wished to gloss over uh so you know like, like celebrities today i guess he, you know, he he played down some of the things that he wasn't quite so uh, proud of within the family um as to whether price threw things or fake things I cannot imagine why he would do it uh, and I cannot conceive of why he would do it um I I, you know, I don't know him. I wish I did, um, but I've read extensively his books, his letters, um, the research he left behind, and his research was meticulous. He didn't need the, the cheap, tacky publicity of throwing a few stones and bottles around. Mm -hmm. um, he he was already a celebrity ghost hunter. He he already had the voice of a me of the media and. I don't think he would have risked that by cheap publicity stunts. And Price was often um, at the forefront of rebuking and debunking claims of the paranormal. Um, whilst you know, mediums, if if he believed that they, you know, if they passed his rigorous tests, he would support them. But woe betide any of them that didn't, because he was. You know, he would go after them and he would make sure that everybody knew that they were. I mean, he he, he, he could make Houdini look like a pussycat. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we know so much about Borley Rectory and, and Harry Price but and his testing of mediums. But are there other investigations that he did that, that stand out in your mind? Uh, well, Price was also active with poltergeist. He investigated several poltergeist uh, cases um, during his career. I think his most notable case that he's, he's remembered for that, that doesn't classically fit your haunted house or investigating mediums has to be Jeff the Mongoose, uh, which took place on the Isle of Man in a deserted farmhouse with the... Um, there was a mum and a, a dad and the daughter who lived in this isolated farmhouse on the island on the Isle of Man. Now the Isle of Man is uh, a relatively small island stuck in the middle of the Irish Sea, halfway between mainland Britain and Ireland. Um, and it, it, on this isolated farmhouse atop a mountain was um, 
there was this family the family lived and a creature appeared that announced itself a mongoose and in time learned to talk it could do extraordinary things it would disappear for days on end and then come back with local gossip um it would appear momentarily and fleetingly um it it would could ride a bus it could ride the bus uh, it rode under the bus yeah. Um, it refused to be investigated on several occasions, and on on rare occasions, it would deliver um, chickens and, and other sort of food items to the farmhouse, um, or give people a nip if they forgot to feed it. Now, really, we would you know, modern researchers tend to consider that what you're dealing with here, or what they like to feel comfortable dealing with, is uh, a poltergeist case. Mm-hmm. Perhaps most akin to the Bell Witch, and in fact, the the uh, Jeff the Mongoose has been likened to the Bell Witch many, many times, and there are a great many similarities between the two cases um, of yeah. the Bell Witch in Tennessee and, and um, the uh, Jeff the Mongoose. It was originally called the Dolby Spook, Dolby as in D A L B Y, uh, which was the part of the island of the Isle of Man um, in which it took place. And the idea of Jeff the Mongoose came somewhat later in the story and came as a result, actually, of Jeff the Mongoose, who first of all said his name and the very peculiar spelling of it, which is G-E-F, um, although he did specify the pronunciation. Well, he's only a mongoose, so give, cut him a little slack, you know. <laughs> well, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people often refer to him as Geff. Mm. Um but that's not the case. Um, oh. He himself said that his name was Jeff, but had this strange spelling. And he himself was the one that said he was a mongoose. Although at various other times, he did claim to be other things also. So I think that has to be Price's um, most extraordinary uh, other case. Is that but the same was... cast that the, the uh, Warrens investigated, right? Didn't they investigate everything? I pretty much think so. <laughs> I don't believe that. Well, unless they're, they're older than, than um, they let on. Uh, the, the, the Mongoose case took place in the 1930s on the Isle of Man, so just before the start of World War II. Um, so I don't really think the Warrens were kicking around too much then. Maybe Grandpa and, and, Warren did it. And how did it, how did it finally end, Steve? Well... It kind of just fizzled out. Um, it didn't lend itself to investigations. Price himself <coughs> sent um, <coughs> um, another researcher, several researchers over to the island, and they, they had very limited success. And eventually Price himself went over, and the mongoose resolutely failed to appear. In fact, um, only reappeared after Price had left. This <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, simply saying that, you know, it didn't want to know Price. Price was going to catch him and hurt him. Um, and so the mongoose absented itself and disappeared. Mm. Uh, and like many poltergeist cases, it, it simply fizzled out. As the daughter Voyeury grew older, um, she encountered Jeff less and less. Although there is, what's interesting is that there were actually a native population of mongooses on the Isle of Man. They were imported um, 50 years before that in the early part of the 20th century to try and control the, the rabbit population. And obviously one or two of them got away. Mm. Um, and so there were actually a, a small native population of, of mongooses on the island of Man. Um, there are drawings, there are other people <coughs> who, who, you know, uh, theorise about what it was, but it was, as I say, 80, 80 80 years ago right. um, and like with a lot of these things 
we're not in a position to know all of the facts. And, you know, lots of people speculate, as they do about Price and as they do about Borley. Yeah, the uh, the difference between, I think, uh, Jeff the Mongrels and, and the Bell Witches is the Bell Witch was very powerful in that it would it could you know really torment you in fact its claim is that it killed john bell and uh you know they were witch hunters that were sent there were driven away and and of course uh andrew jackson the president andrew jackson had sent had visited the place with uh, some of his troops and they were forced to uh stop from going in eventually they, they were allowed in but uh all by the Bell Witch. So Bell Witch had uh, much more power, I guess you would say, than, than Jeff the Mongos. Uh, there, are, there, are, there are differences, of course, um, mm-hmm. and you touch on one of the key differences, which is the Bell Witch was much more malevolent. Um, yeah. Jeff would give you a playful nip um, on the finger, and he drew blood on several occasions with these playful nips. Mm. Um, but that was about as de- that was about as dangerous as Jeff was. Right. You know, he, he was if if if, you know, if if we are to believe him, he was a mongoose. Um, the Bell Witch was something different. Although there are a great many similarities between the stories uh, that suggest that they that they have perhaps something in common. Um, and a great many researchers down the years have drawn parallels between the two cases. Um, one, one thing I think is the ability to know certain things that, that mm-hmm. are happening outside mm-hmm. of the, the local area, right? And, and also to, to converse as well. Um, yeah, it converse, yeah. And also involving animal forms. Again, I, the, the very few podcast cases that involve a- animal form apparitions. And the two most notable are perhaps the Bell Witch and Jeff the Mongoose. Mm-hmm. But Price did other things also. I mean, he, he, he used to challenge uh, people's beliefs and conceptions at, at, at other levels also. He got criticised very, very badly when a media uh, stunt was completely misinterpreted by, by the media. Um, really? Guess what? The media were making up fake news even then. Price went up to Brocken in Germany um, in the 1930s to perform an experiment, a rich and occult ritual. Um, because, you know, as you're aware, um, the Nazi uh, Nazi Germany had a deep interest in the occult. And although Price had strong links with Germany and many friends in Germany, he was not the world, you know, he was not the greatest fan of the Nazi regime. And he wanted to do something that would be a test of, you know, whether these occult practices had anything to them. You know, you have to test things. Um, a good researcher will always test an idea. Um, but also, uh, in the back of his mind, there was also this idea of, you know, demonstrating that this wasn't going to be the case. And it was to turn a goat um, into, by using occult magic and ritual, <clears throat> turn a goat into a young, handsome Adonis, um, a young boy, a, 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 you know, a, a, a vision of sort of male beauty. I think the Nazis tried that kind of thing. Well, they tried it too, but in a different way. Well, Price performed the ceremony, and of course, um, it didn't work. He he started with a goat, and he finished with a goat, uh, (laughs) as as he himself suspected would happen. And he and he said so in his you know in his own writings. However, the press uh, latched onto the fact that he had failed to turn it into a young Adonis, and he was criticised for you know for the foolhardy you know attempt and for you know even considering that such a thing were possible the man's mad 
um, you know, he, he misjudged the publicity call on that one. He himself, he himself said later in, in his autobiography that uh, it was not perhaps one of his greatest um, decisions. But, you know, it, is it any really, was he really any different than, than the modern ghost hunters of today? No, no. I mean, I, I think he was more thorough and perhaps more serious than most of the ghost hunters. He, uh, he absolutely thorough. Um, he, he when, it, when it came to the testing of mediums and also in his examination of haunted houses such as Borley, and there were others that he examined too, um, thoroughness was, you know, the, you know, it was the A, B, C, D and Z of, of, of his investigation process. He designed equipment um, to constrain mediums, not, not sort of tie them up in a way that they couldn't perform, but that um, by use of basically boots and gloves that were electrically conductive and all wired together, um, to an indicator panel, if any one person in the circle or if the medium tried to remove their hands or feet from control in order to manipulate anything, the indicators would immediately um, not only go go off, but they would tell you know they would indicate which person had broken the circle, mm-hmm. um, and that was you know by hand and foot. He was very very thorough. He used infrared photography. Um, you know, we think of night vision cameras being employed within ghost hunting um, as being a relatively modern thing, which they are in terms of video. Price was using infrared photography, um, you know, right from... Um, I wasn't aware of that. You know, through the 1920s, 1930s. He used stereo photography as well. Um, he used stereo cameras. Yep, um, I, I saw that in his equipment. You know, it's infrared photography, was I was first introduced by uh, Brian the Monk, a Franciscan monk who used to work with Bob Cahill. And, uh, yeah, back then it was real film. So, I mean, it was not, first of all, a very, not a cheap thing to do because it was filmed back then and development for uh, infrared film was expensive. Uh, plus, you have to take great care in it. Uh, the the uh, the film itself was, was heat sensitive, so you had to treat it properly, keep it in the refrigerator. Uh, you had to load the camera in a black bag and, and unload it in a black bag. I still have my black bag, in fact, uh, from doing that. So, yeah, it's. It, I, I still think that uh, we really haven't done enough research in in that uh, infrared range. I think that there's well, a Pri- lot. Price's intent uh, with the infrared wasn't to find ghosts. Um, it was to see figure in the back he, he was he was specifically using it in in the seance room to watch the right. mediums because right. they I understand that they were you know they were adamant that they would only perform in either very low light um or or red light, very subdued red light and price wanted to find a way of watching what they were doing or capturing what they were doing and indeed he did catch uh, several mediums most famous being rudy schneider one of the german schneider brothers um pulling his arm from inside a restraint um, using an infrared camera. Um, huh. Price never used infrared photography, as far as anybody's aware, in terms of haunted locations, because he knew that these, these cameras required so much. You know, the film was expensive. The cameras themselves were yeah. expensive. Especially the back then, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And, and although he did deploy, um, notably at Borley, um, Price 
was aware that the one one room in particular known as the the blue room which for people who look at any photograph of Borley they'll see on the rear of the building a large glass conservatory and in the center of the conservatory on the uh, uh, first floor for Americans uh, sorry, on the second floor for Americans and the first floor for British listeners, uh, there's a group of windows. They, they they were the blue room, and it was in the blue room that Harry Bull died. But the blue room was also the focus of um, some of the alleged haunting activity. It was supposed to be the focus of the building's haunting activity. And immediately outside the blue room was a cold spot um, that people had documented, people had reported. Price um, used an Egretti and Zangra Zambra um, recording thermometer, uh, which was state of the art. It was, you know, his equivalent of us using thermal imaging today, mm-hmm. um, digital thermal imaging today, to document the temperatures of the cold of the cold spot and mark that precise spot, both in the blue room and the uh, the floor beneath it to see if it was, um, um, you know. Th- uh, right through the building and not just one, one particular spot on one particular floor. Mm-hmm. So Price was very aware of the use of technology applied pr- appropriately. Mm-hmm. He was an engineer. Um, you know, he Not only did he um, deploy equipment, and he would go to the manufacturers, as I said, Negretti and Zangra, uh, who were you know, uh, leading instrument makers uh, for industry at that time. But uh, he would also... Um, manufacture the equipment that he lacked he, he built specific equipment and tools to help him test mediums not just to constrain them with the with the electric gloves and the electric boots that we talked about uh, mentioned earlier but he built devices um, for testing mediums uh, that had inbuilt controls in them for example he built a device called the spiritoscope uh, sp- um, telekinetoscope now the telekinetoscope was designed to be used with the psychic Stella C or Stella Cranshaw and this is a young London secretary whom, whom Price had met on the train and in conversation discovered that uh, she had some abilities and was willing to be tested. Now, <clears throat> this was a simple experiment. All the, all the spirit realm had to do was to light a bulb. Um, but Price had built in the controls uh, into the telekinetoscope that the bulb and the switch that activated the bulb were protected by glass domes. The cable between them was armoured so that that also was protected. And intriguingly, not just uh, over the switch was a glass dome, but over the switch inside the glass dome, it was protected by a soap bubble so that any interference with the switch at all, even by air pressure, would, of course, pop the soap bubble, the glycerin soap bubble. Hmm. Um, And guess what? It lit. <laughs> did it really? It did. He also built other things. There was the shadow apparatus for trying to view um, uh, ectoplasmic rods that emanated from from um, materializing mediums. You know, they, they said that they had these, these ectoplasmic rods or emanations that were causing things to move. He built an extraordinary, or he had built a, a series of seance tables. Um, within them were cages in which uh, musical instruments or other devices, toys could be placed for the oh, is, Isn't there a famous one of, of an accordion <coughs> or something uh, that was... There is. There is. There's a 10-minute Pathé recording, which people can Google. If you use Google Harry Price uh, Pathé, um, you can actually see the table. Um, now, 
an earlier version of that table got smashed literally to matchwood during a seance. And these things were properly built by cabinet makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were, they, they, they were very well made. Um, I, I, several years ago, I have, I have um, a relative who's a qualified cabinet maker. And we looked at the cost of recreating one of these tables using the original materials and techniques. And the techniques were simple. I mean, they, they were good quality furniture making techniques that um, were easy to do. However, the cost of materials um, was absolutely prohibitive, prohib- prohibitive. But one of the comments that, that came through was how well um, the, dev- the, the table had been constructed. You know, it was properly um, tongue and groove together. It was properly, you know, the tolerances. Um, it had a lifting uh, top. Now, the top was sort of the middle or the center quarter of the table would lift up, but it was also um, dovetailed in. And the, the tolerance, you, you couldn't get a cigarette paper between the panels, so you couldn't just sort of insert a finger and flip the top up. Um, Price had, had built these controls in. Why would a man going to that degree of um, detail want to then risk it all by throwing stones or tipping bottles or and people have latched onto the fact that you know oh well he was a magician price was a leading member of the british magic circle right um, and as as is uh, <coughs> uh, uh lloyd abrak he's a mentalist yeah uh, i mean price was a you know a classic magician he could mm-hmm. he knew the conjuring tricks that didn't mean to say that he then employed them against people in terms of, oh, I will flannel you just to get a bit, a bit of cheap publicity. Uh, there is one of the things that, that is lacking in many of these criticisms of Price is any explanation as to why they say, oh, well, you know, he did it for the publicity. He didn't need to. He already had huge amounts of publicity. Uh, you know, he'd written best-selling books. He was in newspapers, you know, pretty much on a weekly basis. He was a celebrity. He was bigger than Zach Bacon's. Uh, he didn't need any extra cheap publicity, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, to me, he's probably the one of the greatest ghost hunters of all time. And, uh, you know, I, I, I look at some of the others that, you know, Hans Holzer is always comes to mind. And, yeah. But, you know, I mean... Uh, what other? Who else would you put in that class besides? Oh well, there are others. There's Andrew Green here in the UK, um, who, who who passed away a few years ago. Um, he was equally notable, um, particularly in the UK. You you also had. I mean, there was Elliot O'Donnell, um, a contemporary of Price actually, uh, and another great author wrote many many books. Price only wrote you know a relatively small number of books compared to O'Donnell. But there were a handful, and we, in, in more recent times, we've had Tony Cornell, um, a member of the SPI, you know, an SPI researcher, um, who, along with Dr. Alan Gould, did extraordinary work through the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. uh, into the 80s. But Price has to be recognised for being the, the sort of the godfather of the modern technique, the modern method that is of um, instrumentation of documentation. Price wrote the first how-to guide for investigators at Borley called the Blue Book, which was a sort of do do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that guidebook. And it was the first one that had ever been done. Mm-hmm. Um, and Price was one of the first investigators who didn't just go along 
to visit the landed gentry in their own homes, write about the you know the the ghost legend, and then spend the night sitting on the chair with a glass of brandy, waiting for it to appear. Yeah, he was Price, a serious investigator. Price was unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately, we just about out of time. Uh, that was the bell, which means uh, chocolates from the dead are here, so we have to get going. This didn't say it was the bell witch. I hope not. <laughs> Anyways, uh, you know, it was uh, Harry Price is an intriguing person. I do recommend people to, uh, you know, yeah, check I, out I'll Facebook. Um, go over to uh, Borley, the scientific um, uh, investigation. There's a Facebook page. Leighton Barrable uh, runs that one. It's excellent resource. And there's also harrypriceco.uk. Uh, again, you've got the full transcripts of most of Harry's books, lots of detailed uh, historical photographs of of the, the rectory and um, and other price-related investigations. Excellent, excellent resources. Yeah, or so, or just come come over to New England in the fall. I can't. This Bali I'm doing, isn't it? I have no clue. So, anyways, <laughs> uh, oh no, no, it's Price. It's the biography of Harry Price. It is, is it? I think. I can't remember. I thought you were doing Coddling Fairies. Yeah, no, 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 the other one. The library one. Well, that's whatever. Anyways, there's the tunes we have to go. So, anyways, check out my website. trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Indieghostproject.com. The letter N, the letter E, ghostproject.com. And, and when we find out what I'm doing in New England in the fall, you'll be the second to know. Good night and God bless and happy Valentine's Day. Sorry, Andrew. We'll get you soon. Yeah. Happy Valentine's. He knew that. He's psychic, remember? <laughs> oh, we're finished now. Can we, can we talk about yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about it. Yeah. How we never got away with that. So you've got a foot of snow. Oh, more than that. Yeah. Been up oh, on yeah. Snow. Well, now you're worth buying that snowblower. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good, good investment. Definitely. Aren't they going to be made? From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night, deliver us good law.